You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, January 7th, 2021. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison, joined shortly by our managing director in London, or actually in the UK, I should say, Roger Hurst. But first, with the news of the day, Haley Drasnan. Hey, Ed, political unrest in Washington didn't dent cryptocurrency or the stock market's ongoing rally Thursday. Bitcoin hit 40,000 for the first time ever, and all three major stock indexes rose to new all-time highs. The Nasdaq, S&P 500, and the Dow all climbing. Investors are looking at what the shift of political power from Republicans to Democrats means for the market. The expectation is that more fiscal support will be available to the economy, and that will then, of course, boost equities, especially those hit hardest by the pandemic. Yields on treasuries are also up. Goldman Sachs, too, raised its growth forecast for the U.S. economy, predicting output will now expand by 6.4% this year. That's up from 5.9%, and that's based on the assumption that Congress will now be able to pass a $750 billion stimulus package, including $300 billion in stimulus checks. The economic data of the day also came in better than expected, with lower-than-predicted jobless claims for last week. 787,000 Americans filing for unemployment benefits, about 3,000 less than the prior week. But note, claims can be volatile around the holidays, so we could see corrections next week. Continuing claims for state programs also fell, and the pandemic unemployment assistance programs that is set to expire also saw a decline. That's the program that provides jobless benefits to those not typically eligible, like the self-employed and gig workers. But still, claims remain well above pre-pandemic levels. We're talking four times higher than this time last year. And Friday's jobs report is forecast to show a sharp slowdown in December hiring. We're expected to see the first uptick in the unemployment rate since April. Other indicators also pointed to a slowing employment recovery in December. ADP Research Institute data show company payrolls fell by 123,000. America's job crisis clearly isn't over, especially with the threat of the new COVID strain. The current wave of infections is weighing on economic activity. Just look at Europe right now, what we're seeing there. The most all-encompassing lockdown since the ones initiated in March 2020 because of this more contagious strain. This reinforces the view that Europe has lapsed into a second recession, and we could see conditions like this in the U.S., The surge in coronavirus cases will no doubt have a meaningfully negative impact on the global economy in Q1 of 2021. And, you know, we could see a global recession, as Ed points out in his Credit Write-Downs newsletter. So there is this threat of more widespread lockdowns in the U.S., especially by February. But if we get vaccinations rolled out, then we're in for a significant rebound, I think, for the second half of the year. Back to you, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Happy New Year to you there in the UK, Roger. Happy New Year to you. How's it going? It's going well, you know, and I noticed that you have a new background. You're in a new place. Uh, you're, you're not in Ipswich anymore. No, well, I, was always, I wasn't in Ipswich before. I was in Albrough, but no one would have a Scooby where that is. I'm now in Woodbridge. I'm actually in the centre of Woodbridge. It's a new home I moved into a couple of months ago. Excellent. You know, uh, I'm sure because you know that I'm, I'm nominally in D.C. I'm actually four uh, blocks from D.C. that, you know, people wanted to talk about uh, what's going on in D.C. I actually don't want to talk about that, Roger. I want to talk about what's going on in the markets. You know, and I've already picked your brain ahead of time, so I kind of know that you're on the same page as me with regard to that. And we're both thinking about reflation. Let me tell you how I'm thinking about it, though, before you get into uh, what's, what your call is. I, I, wrote, I wrote this thread right before we came on on Twitter, and there was one part of the thread that I want to say, uh, this is what, how I'm thinking about it, is, is this. If you look at market action, it all speaks to reflation. Dollar down. Equities up, bond yields up, oil prices up, gold up, Bitcoin up. All of that is interrelated. It's all coming to the same trade, the reflation trade. Now, when I look at the real economy, what I see is you right now in uh, the UK in lockdown. I see the Germans with 1,000 deaths a day in lockdown. I see the Japanese going into more of a lockdown. And I anticipate in the United States that we're going to have more problems going forward. We certainly had a negative print on the ADP number on Wednesday. So for me, Q1 is not looking good. I'm thinking double dip. And the markets are basically looking through that and saying reflation. What what are you seeing? So I think what is absolutely fascinating is that in 25 years in this business, I've never seen such an overwhelming consensus for the year ahead in terms of those 2021 forecasts. And you're right, it's all about it's about reopening, it's reflation, it's rotation, it's buy investment grade, sorry, buy high yield over investment grade, buy small caps over large caps, buy low quality, buy emerging markets over developed markets, buy commodities. Basically, it's this everybody. And I, I looked through something from Bloomberg. They had 500 quotes. And after about 200, I gave up because I'd only found one. It was Barcap saying, oh, maybe the dollar's got a little bit too far. And obviously, short selling the dollar, shorting the dollar is part of that. And now it's obviously, I wouldn't say seductive. It's a very logical um, view to take because there's fiscal, there's monetary, the vaccine is coming. You add all those together and it's this pickup in growth. But as a narrative, it is so all-encompassing in a way that I've never seen before that I'm a little bit nervous about that. Now, I think there will be momentum into the beginning of this year just because it is so all-encompassing from the active managers. But I think it's also a very dangerous one because, yes, I think we've got a double-dip recession coming. Um, but I also think that some of the indicators for that reflationary bias are very, very transient. This is not the sort of reflation trade that we saw in the 2000s, driven by synchronized global growth, is that reflation assets are reacting to a lower dollar. And that lower dollar, yeah, I mean, maybe structurally it's on its way down, but it's not, not a one-way trip. And I think because it's not a one-way trip, I think there's a lot of risk that there's a lot of people now on that one side of the boat. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's a crowded trade. And whenever there's a crowded trade, you always have to uh, take caution. But at the same time, it's crowded. Uh, and there are things on the horizon that potentially are negative for it. I mean, the way that I'm looking at it is you and I, we're on the same page that there are there's murky data coming in Q1, maybe Q2. So the beginning of the year. But the markets are basically saying, so what? Uh, we already know that there's a vaccine, not only one vaccine, there are like 12 vaccines uh, that you can you can benefit from. We're, when the market, re, when uh, we get reopened, the economy reopens, it's going to be gangbusters. You're, you're going to get pent up demand. And that is reflationary, uh, irrespective of what is happening right now in the here and now. It sort of is true. Um, but let's say the whole world got a vaccine tomorrow and everyone took a vaccine tomorrow. That means that the population's um, productivity capability is exactly where we were at the beginning of 2020. Not higher, but the same. But at the same time, you have a lot of issues that are still there below the surface from what we've had already. So it's a case of, yes, all this is pent up, potential pent up demand, although I'm going to come on to that later. Um, but the key here is, and when we think about all the fiscal stimulus and the monetary, in fact, that's wrong, the fiscal support and monetary support, it's support. It's not stimulus. The reason why we're pushing furlough schemes out is because we're still kind of catching the falling knife. We're not actually stimulating growth yet. We're still trying to protect the economy from going down even further by basically handing out cash or trying to hand out cash. So all of that is, you know, is that something which is creating growth? Well, it's not creating growth yet. And then I think the other things to do with this as well is, firstly, if you think the fiscal is going to be there, it's got to be in much, much bigger size to create the sort of growth that's being priced in. And I think a lot of this is to do with what we've seen with many assets is they've reacted to a couple of things. Now, firstly, we did see some pent-up demand brought forward. This is something Mike Green was talking about, which is that we've seen over the last 12 months or last nine months, we've seen effectively a, a basically services have been replaced by goods and commodities in terms of demand. So we've been locked down. Instead of going out for dinners, we've been making food at home. Instead of going on holidays, we've been building garden sheds. We've been making extensions. Demand for finished goods, demand for commodities. That's helped push commodity prices up. You've also had supply chain disruptions, which has helped push commodity prices up. A lot of the demand for these goods has been from Taiwan, Korea, pushing the dollar down. We've also had this expectation that the Fed is going to be very, very aggressive, and they have been. But when you look at the net position of the ECB versus the Fed balance sheet, it's flat now on the year, year on year. So over the last 12 months, the Fed started hard. The ECB is now caught up. So that narrative is, are we seeing commodities going higher because of existing demand being high? Or are we seeing demand brought forward and some bottlenecks? Why are OPEC cutting? They're not cutting because demand's surging. Overall demand, overall oil usage is still 14% below where it was pre-COVID. They're cutting because demand remains weak. So the key to this reflation narrative, and I talk about reflation, there's two types. There's reflation of assets, or sorry, there's assets that have a reflation bias that respond to a lower dollar. They've sort of done well. But then there's a the reflation like we saw in 2002 to 2008, where China came on board. They drove a massive demand for commodities. That demand for commodities helped emerging markets outperform. Their high beta currencies performed well, and the dollar, as a consequence, fell relative to those emerging market currencies. That was synchronized global growth, and that was sustainable reflation. Today, 
almost all reflation is on the back of a weaker dollar, not underlying demand. And that is what makes this massive consensus, I think, something which people have to be wary of. It doesn't mean it won't work down the road, but we've got to get through probably a double-dip recession first. Right, yeah. And, you know, uh, that that's the, the key for me is that uh, the reflation narrative has gotten ahead of itself so quickly. I think I sent you right before we uh, started taping a thing from Albert Edwards. And I thought it was interesting what he had to say. I mean, the way that I'm thinking about it is a true reflation uh, where you have a steepening yield curve as part of that whole reflationary nexus is good because it means economic growth is going up and therefore you have a, a, a yield curve that's steepening. And we can handle that because earnings will be better in that scenario. But what we're seeing now is we're seeing the reflation in, uh, that's looking out six months or eight months or 10 months, during which time we're going to potentially go into a double dip recession. And we're still getting that steepening yield curve. How much uh, yield curve steepening can you get uh, before people start to wake up and say, hey, wait a minute, uh, we're in a double dip recession, you know, paying 40 times for Apple is probably not what I want to be doing. Yeah, and I think there's, there's two elements to that, which I think are key here. And, and it goes back to kind of what is reflation. And reflation was no normally always a sort of recovery growth. So have we got recovery growth yet? A little bit, but we're probably going to go negative GDP again. But what's really key, and this is something which a lot of guests, even on Real Vision, have actually not been very clear about, which is, I always think of reflation as being growth, which might have inflation with it, but because you've got growth, the net effect is that growth outpowers inflation. If you get inflation with no economic growth, that's not reflation. That's inflation and probably stagflation. And that is very transient for the overall economy because suddenly it's like, God, I'm paying higher prices for commodities. Okay, how long can that last in this environment? Not very long. And so there's this sort of Am I worried about inflation? Yes, because there is potential demand out there. Because a lot of people, what they're doing is they're looking at M2 and they're seeing that huge spike, massive, massive spike in 2020. And what is that M2 spike come about from? Well, as Mike Green points out, a lot of it was emergency drawdowns of corporates of their credit lines. So they drew down their credit lines, put it into the checking account, M2 goes up. And then furlough um, em employees getting their, their um, uh, checks saying, oh, I'm spending it on nothing, putting into savings. And U.S. savings, 12-month cumulative, 1.25 trillion increase um, through last year. So that's increased M2. Now, if you're a corporate and you're seeing your demand not as impaired as you thought because of the furloughed wages, well, those emergency funds you drew down, you go, actually, I didn't need them, pay them back. So that M2 spike is more a reflection of current dislocation in the economy than it is on future inflation. Now, everyone's seeing that M2 spike is saying, oh, when velocity picks up, that's going to kick in. It's potential inflation. Absolutely. I'm not changing that view. Potential inflation, but maybe that spike in M2 is transitory in the same way that the savings ratio, which went up to 35%, is now back down in single double digits, but it's still there. So firstly, are we really going to get that inflationary impulse or that, that reflationary impulse? And if we do get it, is it actually going to be demand on a tight supply chain creates inflation? So I just think that there's this environment that we're going into where inflation is a risk, but it's transient inflation caused by bottlenecks and some pent-up demand. But we're actually looking at the main reasons for inflation saying that should lead to higher inflation. But again, historically, through every recession, CPI generally falls, and we're probably going into a double-dip recession. And as, um, as Stephen Van Meter po pointed out um, a few weeks ago, 
We've seen M2 pick up in recessions without CPI picking up. Now, yes, this is a bigger spike, but if all that extra spike is that drawdown of emergency lines, which eventually gets paid back, then the potential inflationary impulse from that is much lower. And yet we're looking at saying, oh, it's coming, it's coming. I just don't think it's coming just yet. Yeah, I would say that I I have some skepticism about uh, whether it's coming, uh, and partially because I thought it was interesting. If you saw the ADP report that came out yesterday, uh, the ADP report showed we lost 123,000 private sector jobs in the United States. Uh, expectations had been for 88,000 ad. The interesting bit, however, was it wasn't just small businesses that were losing jobs. Small businesses lost a lot of jobs. Medium-sized businesses gained jobs. Large businesses were cutting workers during the holiday season. What does that say to me? It says to me that the M2, the drawdown that you were talking about, that, that they did, got them through the hard times. They had the, uh, the, the uh, reflation of the uh, reopening, and now they're seeing actually conditions that are causing them to draw back again. So that's not inflationary at all. What's going on in the U U.S.? And I would imagine that in Europe, it's a similar event. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's, you know, what we're seeing here is that, you know, things got broken so rapidly and so completely that things are popping up that we've never seen before. And remember, the, the processed beef was the classic one, went first, they call it boxed beef, this U.S. thing, because you had the... Um, the live cattle were being slaughtered because the abattoirs were closed, which meant that there was no processed beef. So you had depressed cattle prices, but you had spiking processed beef, inflation, because of a supply chain bottleneck. Right now, you've got soft commodities, things like corn, soya, all those. They're all going through the roof, although they're really following the move in the dollar as much as anything else. But you're seeing these lumber, the same lumber spiked up. It actually fell when everyone came out of, um, came out of lockdown. So from September to November, lumber prices fell, they're spiked up again now. But all of these things are, you know, are they to do with these quite radical conditions where we're getting some money, which some people are spending today, some people are saving. Now, that pickup in savings, we don't know if that savings is future potential demand or, my God, we nearly lost it all this time. We still haven't got a pension. I never had any savings. I'll spend a bit of that when I'm out of, of lockdown, but actually I'm going to save more of that than I ever would have thought because now I know what it feels like to live on the edge. Now, we don't know, but these things, when you look at them, they look like massive inflation is coming and they have the inflationary potential, but inflationary potential is not reflationary potential and inflationary potential without wages picking up is actually quite negative for the economy. So, that's not reflation. This is where a lot of people say, oh, inflation's coming. It's a reflationary trade. Buy the reflation trades. Like, buy those trades that like inflation and like a weaker dollar, but we might find all this rolls over and it all reverses because this was not sustainable, synchronized global growth. Clearly, it's not synchronized global growth right. because we're all going into lockdown again. Very, yeah, you very know, reflation. I, I was going to say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to what you said at the beginning and also what I said in terms of the nexus of the reflation trade. The way that I was explaining the reflation trade was, you know, dollar down, it was commodities up, oil up, uh, equities up, uh, yields up, uh, Bitcoin, gold up. You were explaining it in terms of high yield over investment grade, a small cap over large cap, emerging markets over uh, developed markets, you know, buy Japan, buy commodities, sell dollars, buy risk. 
I think all of that's part of one nexus. Which part of that nexus or which parts of that nexus are the most vulnerable in a situation where people start to doubt the reflation trade? Well, I think it goes back to how sustainable is the one-way move in the dollar. Now, the one-way move in the dollar is, you know, we, we've now got the blue wave. So you price in you know, that Biden could do more. So that was always yields going high, which we've got. So yields going high, steepening of the yield curve. That looks quite good for the banks, et cetera. Um, and, you know, more fiscal stimulus will potentially come. But you know, fiscal stimulus, give $2,000 out. Oh, and higher taxes. Well, higher taxes, tightening fiscal conditions, giving $2,000 out is loosening them. Maybe you get flat fiscal conditions on, on that basis in the short term. And I think the dollar, therefore, is the bit that is at risk, because if you look at the ECB and you look at Europe, Europe can't do much on the fiscal side. So they're probably going to have to do more on the monetary side. And as I said before, when you look at how the central banks reacted, the, the Fed went really, really hard and really, really fast. They did a good job of reacting quickly. The US does that very well. The Europeans pontificated, et cetera. But the ECB got its act in gear. And eventually, the ECB's balance sheet started to expand. And as I said, they're pretty much like for like now over that year. Now, the US can do more fiscal than Europe can because we've just got, you know, 500 billion was agreed by 27 nations. The frugal five are going to go, not again, not for a while. So that means that the ECB has to do more. So it could be that the ECB ends up being more aggressive. And remember, the other thing that, that is true is that Japan, Switzerland, have more you know, balance sheet expansion for GDP than the US by quite some way. And if you add up every central bank doing balance sheet expansion, they're significantly more than the US. So there's actually more non-dollars being printed or being you know, created in that central bank sort of way than there are dollars by the Fed. So that's a vulnerable position. And now when you look at positioning, copper, extremely long speculative positioning, because hedge funds have been chasing this. Oh, it's dollar down, buy copper. Euro is still near those record highs. There's not so much in the bond market. The bond market is about growth. The bond market is almost neutral. Two-year, five-year, 10-year positioning is give or take around zero. It's only the 30-year where you've got the net short, which is the bit sensitive to inflation and less influenced by the Fed. But you've also got to remember people are saying, but inflation expectations are now at 2%. 10-year tips, five-year tips are there. It's like, yeah, but who's been the big buyer there? 20% of the market by the Fed. If the market thought inflation was coming, why is it the Fed needs to buy these products to make it look like inflation's coming? It's because the market actually doesn't really believe it. The Fed's trying to make the market believe it by pushing the inflation products. Nominal yields have gone nowhere, going up a little bit now on the back of Biden, et cetera. But again, the narrative is more powerful than positioning it necessarily. And the narrative is coming from the active community. And the active community mm -hmm. is unfortunately a diminishing community in the investment landscape because the passives are more important. And so when people say sell tech stocks to buy inflation trades, I'm thinking, does a passive fund do that? Or does a passive fund go big cap, buy big cap, still a big cap, buy a big cap? That's how they work. They don't rotate. So we're talking about a narrative and an idea is about a diminishing part of the market. And suddenly you could find that 25% of the market's rotating or 75% of the market is carrying on with the trades that have worked for the last 10 years in a world where central banks have pushed down 10-year inflation and growth expectations to below zero, where they still are. And so therefore, the best thing as a logical thing to do would be buy assets that t tend to go up when central banks are loose. I, I just think that you know the narrative and the active management uh, narrative is the hedge funds, the active managers doing this, could end up finding themselves in a weak position compared to the passives, which 
in some ways now control the market. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Interesting. You know, um, uh, as you were saying that, the thing that pops out at me the most is uh, cross border capital, Mike Howe. And I know that you've spoken to Mike in the past. And the last thing I saw, which was probably yesterday from cross border, was about uh, 2021 and the expectations for massive liquidity. And generally speaking, from his perspective, that's bullish for asset prices generally, including equities. What do you make of, of his framework in terms of thinking about, at, at a minimum, you know, early 2021? So his framework is actually something which has a lot of similarity in certain elements with what Mike Green's talked about, which is what this liquidity does is it actually creates an environment where you get these moves up, but then you get these air pockets to the downside. So actually, the liquidity is both a reason for, and when he talks about liquidity, he talks not just about central banks. People go, but how does central bank liquidity liquidity get into the market? He also talks about the commercial side. He talks about banks putting money into the system as well. Um, he says, look, it's going up, and this is a positive for risk assets, but you're going to get these quite dramatic air pockets. This is the world that we're now in. And so the very thing that it's like that classic thing, like low volatility begets high volatility. Lots of liquidity creates air pockets. And if you can stand a 30% drawdown in an equity market or any asset, then fine. But if you have tight stops, you might find that this liquidity um, deluge becomes a risk on mirage. It looks good for a while. But then you suddenly find yourself having to go, well, I got in late and it's now down 20% and I only caught the, you know, the last 5%. It's a very risky environment, and it's an environment which, if that liquidity is coming in but the framework hasn't changed, then it goes back to, okay, once the active managers have done their bit, and oh, what if we push yields to 1.5% on the US 10-year? Remember at 3.25 at the end of 2018? Bring the bell on the equity market. Equity market sold off. Federal Reserve stupidly cut rates um, on the whatever it was of December, late December, and we had that sell-off onto December the 24th. Now, I don't reckon 3.25 will ring the bell on the equity market this time. Increase in debt, I reckon it'll be somewhere lower. 1.5%, 1.25%, I have no idea. But the point is, we will struggle with higher rates, higher interest rates, and higher um, yields in this environment of higher debt. Yeah, I agree completely. And, and I think that uh, maybe it was uh, Albert Edwards who was saying that BCA Research was talking about 1.5. He reckons, you know, before we get to 1.5, uh, yes, the threshold will be uh, will be reached. Uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of different ways that we could go with this. I was just thinking about um, the the first thing that you know, the thing that's on my mind a lot uh, is that for the first time, I think maybe it was as markets came open in 2021. I was like, you know, this feels like 1999. Uh, I was there, uh, and it feels more like uh, that period of time than any time that I've seen in during this cycle. Uh, uh, is that it, it, are these uh, comparisons to 1999 apt in your in your opinion? Yes, I mean I sat on a desk with Raoul and at the time, and you know we were sitting there watching these these flows going on and talking to lots of skeptical hedge funds, and many of those hedge funds ended up allowing their skepticism to be overcome by the 
the um, by the the desire to participate. And this was at the end of 99 into 2000. And, you know, what, one of the things that you often get in financial markets is you get a round trip in the first quarter is that there's the momentum trade and it looks great. And it's very rare that the momentum trade in the first quarter goes into the second, third and fourth quarter. It often goes up and then tests everybody. Remember, that's what happened in, in it was, I think it was April the 4th or 14th or something like that. It was early April. I think it was a 14% drop on the NASDAQ in a single day. Then it sort of rebounded. And I remember a couple of hedge funds at the time said, OK, now you can start selling the rallies on the NASDAQ. It was that framework was, you know, that belief, the narrative. And, you know, people say no one thought it was, no one thought it was a bubble then. Everyone thought it was a bubble, but they thought it was a bubble that could go on. Today, everyone sort of knows it's a bit weird, but they don't want to miss out. I think there's a lot of that behind this. But the one thing that is very different, and the one reason why I remember back in March or April of last year, I sort of said, I'm not making any any um, predictions here, but this is a framework where we could be in a deep recession in the S&P at 4,000. The reason behind that is that this is a different framework where the active community is no longer in control. They're not the ones driving it. Before it used to be, drive it up, gets too expensive, they sell it, drive it down, it's too, too cheap, and it sort of moves around that mean, and then you got a bubble because retail got involved, it took it out of whack. Whereas today, the passive funds have always been kind of driving this, and we've been out of whack now for five years. If you look at the S&P profits, it's flatlined for five years, right. whilst it's done that. It did that for about six months in 2000. It has changed. And until you break the framework, which is low long-term growth expectations and everyone going, okay, well, my hunt for yield or you know, my hunt for something somewhere means I go towards passives most of the time, then the risk is that those that active kind of mentality is very, very short-lived. And it has been very, very short-lived over the last five to 10 years. The, the passive style, that framework keeps on winning out, keeps on winning out which ultimately is by tech because they're the large cap. You know, uh, let me wrap this up with this with this thought. I want to get your uh, um, synopsis. I mean, the synopsis that I'm getting from you is that it's not clear uh, when this uh, passive-led rally can go on. The market structures change. And, but at the same time, there's some fragility there where you're going to get air pockets as a result of that. To me... Uh, it's not clear based upon that analysis whether or not those air pockets are something to sell or whether or not this rally can go on indefinitely. The, the, so my question to end this all with is, uh, if we're saying caveat emptor, is it a short-term caveat emptor or can I just uh, buy the dip because passive will continue to, to uh, you know, give me a lift? I'm, I've been moving towards that sort of thought process uh, or that, that sort of mentality. And, and we did a piece um, for a central bank and ministry of finance. And we had a guy who used to be the chief operating officer of Brevin Howard did it. And he was very interesting because we did a piece on tail hedging. And this tail hedging was, OK, how do you tail hedge? And basically he was saying, well, the reality is that because of central banks reaction function today, many of the big institutions are saying there is no point in trying to sell what we consider to be a tail event because the reaction of central banks will mean that the tail event is, has a very short longevity and they will do everything that they can to return asset prices to where they were. So big institutions are now taking the view, no point in tail hedging. You do, you've got to have a, a sensibly built portfolio that can withstand a lot of these risks. But if your equity portion sells off 20, 30%, you don't go, go, it's going to sell off another 10%. The assumption based on the last 10 years is that central banks will do something about it. So 
is tail risk hedging. You know, tail risk hedging still has its its opportunities, but you've got to trade your tail risks now because your tail risk, you, the idea was you had this event, blew up your portfolio, you had your tail risk on and you unwound it. Was now it's a case of it blows up your portfolio, but if you want to make money from your tail hedge, you need to monetize it as quickly as you possibly can because the whole portfolio goes back. Now, okay, you might say, well, my portfolio has been protected, but if you really are putting, some people put tail hedges on for fun rather than to protect their portfolios. I've put these on for clients and probably nine out of 10 times I've failed or the client has failed or we've combined, we failed together to monetize those tail hedges in a satisfactory way because of the speed with which things bounce back. Central banks and that passive framework which continue to pour money in until that breaks. And this is why it goes down to insolvencies and serious long-term unemployment reduces 401k money flowing into those passive funds and those rules-based funds. Until that changes, it's hard to really say that, you know, you want to pick a new model because what we saw last year, what we saw in March, is that that model returned very, very quickly back into into form. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say that, Oh, God, I don't really want to say, um, you know, try and ride them out. But you know, what's, everybody has their tolerance limit. I don't have a tolerance limit of a market down 20, 30%. So I'm actually still relatively high in cash at the moment, waiting for some more opportunities. I don't want to put my money in now because I think there is another air pocket. And I think I'll trade it terribly because I think it'll be so short term. So down to everybody's tolerance limit. If you've got a low tolerance limit, you know, you probably will be trading it and you're probably getting out. If you've got a very, very high tolerance limit, you'll probably go, okay, I'm in it for the long run. It's not what I'd have said five years ago, but having watched the last five years, that seems to be the model that we're in, at least certainly for US assets. Yeah, great, uh, great commentary, Roger. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, let me say uh, as we're wrapping it up that uh, I, I've spoken to Tyler Neville in uh, the recent past and uh, he has some similar comments. The next time you come on, maybe we should get the two of you to talk about that. I think it's very interesting to you know, see where the symbiosis in your uh, frameworks are. So thanks. As usual, I loved it. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.